and open your Bibles with me this morning, if you will, please, to the book of Psalms, to the 16th Psalm in particular. We turn this morning where we'll be reading the whole of the Psalm, Psalm 16. It was on a day very much like today, the first Lord's Day after the crucifixion of Christ, that two disciples made their way along the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now you and I can hardly begin, only begin to imagine the, the dismay with which their hearts were filled as they went along the road this day. They were still numb from the terrible events, the turn of events of the past week, how their master who had entered the city a week before as the center of attention with cheers and praises and cries of salvation, so rapidly fell into the hands of his enemies, betrayed by one of his very own, one of the twelve no less, rushed through a mock trial, beaten, forced into the hands of a cowardly politician, Pontius Pilate, beaten and made to make his way again down the streets of Jerusalem, only this time bloodied and bludgeoned, dragging his own cross, not among the midst of victory cries, but of the taunts of the hatred of the people, and then nailed to and hung on the cross. There beloved rabbi was dead. His tomb was sealed. Now what? They make their way home this morning to Emmaus. Their minds are, are clouded with confusion and grief, and their eyes are too. Along the way, they they talk about the same events over and over again, trying to find some clue to understanding and making sure that one or the other uh, couldn't add just a, a spark of new information or understanding to the disaster that has fallen so quickly upon their Lord and, of course, upon them. Then there were those records, those, 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 those um, sayings, the reports about an empty tomb and about angels and saying Jesus is risen just as he said and so on and it only served really to intensify their, their confusion and their grief. Then a man comes alongside them on the road and through the haze of their distress they, they don't recognize him. What's this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk, he asks. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? Cleopas, one of the disciples, answers the man. What things? The man asks. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the answer, a man who was a prophet and mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he, he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Now that man about whom they were speaking, that prophet mighty in word and deed before God and all the people who had been condemned to death and crucified, of course you know that man was the very man 
who stood before them. They were kept from recognizing him until later, but this was Jesus. And Jesus chided them for their slowness to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter in his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted all that the uh, scripture had said, the things concerning himself. How wouldn't you have loved to have heard that sermon? What would you give to be on that pathway to Emmaus that day? Jesus' own sermon on the resurrection in which he goes back to scripture and demonstrates from the scripture that this had been foretold long ago. What, what texts might we ask did he choose for his sermon? We don't know for sure. We can ask what passages to which the apostles refer in preaching about the resurrection to ascertain the answer. But you can know that there was one text to which Jesus turned their attention that day. And that's the same text to which we turn ours, to Psalm 16. From that day on, the apostles hardly preached a sermon on the resurrection, but that they went back and pointed to this very text that we read this morning, to Psalm 16 then, but first to prayer. Our Father, our eyes are darkened. Open them so that we may see. We have been kept from seeing you, O God, and your Christ for the dimness of our eyes in sinfulness and distrust. But you have washed them this morning already as we have asked. And now we pray that that same Holy Spirit who inspired this word when it was written 3,000 years ago, who preserved that word for your apostles, for your people to this very day, that he will now also illumine it to us that we may receive wonderful and marvelous things from your law. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 16, we begin at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shell or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
G.K. Chesterton somewhere said that the one universal experience of mankind is a guilty conscience. Now, he was right about the guilty conscience, but I don't believe that he was right that it was the only universal experience of mankind. There is another, and it is this, a fundamental fear of death. I don't mean to say that every human being gets up every morning of their life and actively begins to fear that he's going to die today. Now, there are some who do, you know, who suffer terribly from the constant preoccupation with the idea of their impending death, with a fear of death. And it's a great demonstration of our entire culture's preoccupation with death that virtually everywhere you turn these days, if you don't find people dressed and painting their nails in a way that speaks of death, the so-called goth styles that are all the rage, you certainly will find television shows one after another dedicated to things like near-death experiences or books or movies that splatter death all over the page and the screen. It seems like if we're not wallowing in the self-imposed sty of death, then we're doing everything we can to ignore and deny the reality, reality of death, sterilizing it when it comes and striving with might and main to keep it from coming at all costs to delay it, to find that fountain of youth or at least the appearance of it. What I mean to say is this, there is a universal experience of mankind concerning death, even if it does not manifest itself daily and trembling or in personal preoccupation with it, it is certain that we universally and fundamentally, we dread death. Human beings dread the thought of their approaching death, even if for no other reason that than that we don't know what it's like. We can't imagine what it's like for soul and body to separate from one another. Only a few people who have, retu have returned from death who'd had that experience and could tell about it, but we don't have a record of what they said if they did. Sigmund Freud, at 64 years old, wrote of his own death, wondering when it would come. I do not know what more there is to say. It is such a paralyzing event, which can stir no afterthoughts when one is not a believer. I've reminded you in the past of the poem, very popular a century ago, W.E. Henley's Invictus with its famous concluding lines, Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade and the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But for all of his bravado, 
in that poem, the same poet would later on in his life confess that no healthy man believes he's going to die. When the inevitable sword falls upon him, he bows his head with the best grace he can muster and says nothing about it. Well, the psalmist, he certainly dreaded the idea of dying. It's his reluctance to meet death that sets him to prayer, to speaking to the Lord thus in Psalm 16. We don't know exactly what experience it was that David was having that gave rise to these words. Some have conjectured that he was fleeing from Saul at the time or recollecting his time of flight from Saul's murderous pursuit. Whatever it was, the dark shadow of death was casting its pale over him. Now, David, as we noted in the evening services from some months ago, David was a type of Christ. That is, he's a picture of Christ some thousand years before Christ's appearing. And so many aspects of David's life we see in those events and thoughts, we see the foreshadowings of the life of Christ. Well, this psalm is no exception. Just as David had many enemies who sought his life, so did Jesus. More than once, death came close to both of them during their lives. It's eloquent testimony to the fullness with which Jesus entered into our human experience, into the misery under the effects of the fall that as Charles Spurgeon put it, the fear of death at one time cast its dark shadow over the soul of the Redeemer. So much so that the scripture says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And most of you will immediately remember the, that in Gethsemane at the specter of his approaching death that it brought great drops of blood from his brow. Jesus has known the dread of death, Christians, and he has undergone it before us. In fact, he's undergone much worse because for him, death met not only his own death, but death for all of his people. It was everlasting death under the, all of the wrath of God multiplied according to an unnumbered multitude of his saints and super concentrated at one point on the cross that Jesus died. But it is in the manner that he faced death and the prospect of it that we learn how to face our own. Death is a fearful thing. But with Christ and in Christ, we may undergo it with confidence. We may face death with confidence because of the certainty of resurrection. David now, remember, speaking as a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ, begins in verse 1. 
crying, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Jesus trusted by faith like the psalmist in his Father to preserve him, to be his refuge. But then nearing the end of the prayer, he confidently says this, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is, to the realm of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. There are different layers of application here. The first, of course, is to David himself. This is David's confidence. His soul will not forever dwell among the realm of the dead. He will not be abandoned by God when his soul departs from his body, but there is a future for his soul. Wonderful. His soul is safe in life. His soul is safe in death. He will not be abandoned. The same is true for you, Christians. Your soul will be kept safe. For though the enemy may kill your body, he cannot touch your soul. In death, just as in life, you are in the hands of your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And you're in the hands of his Father, too. But there's more. Verse 10. Nor will God let his Holy One see corruption. Here David expresses a confidence not only for his soul, but for his body as well. It's a clear witness to the fact that we are both body and soul, that we are psychosomatic unities, and that both are of concern to God, our soul and our body. Now, sometimes at funerals, we're wont to say things like this, looking at the body, we say, well, Uncle George, he's not there anymore. That's, that's not Uncle George. Uncle George is in heaven. But that is wrong. That is unbiblical. That is anti-biblical. Uncle George is there. You're looking at him. Uncle George is in the coffin. And if he is in Christ, he is also in heaven. God has made us with souls but he has also made and cherishes our bodies. Death separates the two as we're laid in the ground in body, yet we also go to paradise with God until the resurrection. It is Gnosticism. It is sheer Gnosticism that teaches that the body does not really matter and that the soul alone is truly important. Gnosticism, by the way, was one of the false teachings against which much of your Bible, your books after the time of Christ, is written against this heresy of Gnosticism, against which Christians had to continue to do battle for years following the writing of the Scripture. It is Gnosticism taught pure and simple in that false gospel that has been all over the news this week. You've been hearing about the gospel of Judas, perhaps. National Geographic, you know, sparked this with their television program. 
featuring this ancient Gnostic manuscript, what is it, 1800 years old, a, a Coptic translation of the Greek gospel of Judas, which is no gospel at all. With breathless enthusiasm, you've heard them, the talking heads buzzing in the news this week. Judas may not have been the bad guy after all. An ancient document reveals that Jesus asked Judas to betray him, but only as a disciple that was closest to Jesus. Absolute balderdash. Christians were dealing, by the way, with that false gospel all the way back in the days of the early church father Irenaeus, who was familiar with it in the second century and identified it for what it was and is, fiction. But what is particularly false about this false gospel is what the Gnostic writer of the so-called gospel of Judas puts on Jesus' lips. But you will exceed all of them, Jesus is supposed to say to Judas. You will exceed all of them, for you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. In other words, in true Gnostic fashion, Jesus is said to desire nothing more than escape from his body, which is bad. The body is bad, according to Gnostic doctrine, so that his soul, which alone is good, according to that teaching, can be free. And then, just as important as what is included in the Gospel of Judas is the thing that is not included in the Gospel of Judas, any reference at all to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Not a word. The gospel ends with betrayal. That's it. No resurrection, no empty tomb, no bodily appearances. Why? You all are way ahead of me. It's because, of course, the Gnostics did not find that important in the least. Because the body is all that matters and escape from it. I mean, the body, escape from the body is all that matters. It's the soul that is alone important and good according to this false religion. That religion, by the way, Gnosticism, it is back in vogue in our culture and spreading in the church. Big time. Big time. Which explains why the Gospel of Judas has been all the rage this week. And why the Da Vinci Code, also based on Gnostic sources, is so wildly popular and will soon hit your movie screens. It is sheer Gnosticism. It's an ancient heresy that is now considered the latest new idea. Isn't it true there is nothing new under the sun. What is saddest about all of it, though, is this. Yet again, in another way, people are being denied the joy and the confidence of facing death with the sure and certain hope of resurrection. In yet another way, the glorious biblical gospel that culminates in the literal, physical resurrection from the dead with life everlasting is being substituted by a dismal gospel in which the body is simply abandoned to the grave 
and to the dust forever. But that brings us back to David. What did he mean when he said he will not let his Holy One see decay? Well, what is he talking about? Did he mean that he himself would not decay in the grave? That's what he meant. He must be sorely disappointed. But Paul explains to us that that verse was not about David. It was about David's greater son, the Holy One. In Acts 13, after quoting our psalm, Paul says that David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. In other words, David was speaking of Jesus. Peter agrees in Acts 2, quoting the same psalm and concluding that David foresaw and spoke of Jesus about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, Peter preached at Pentecost, and we are all witnesses. Now Jesus, he knew this psalm too. He loved the scripture. And it was for him, no doubt, a great instrument of encouragement when the fear of death cast its shadow over his heart, as it will every one of yours, sooner than you dare to imagine. He remembered. Jesus recalled to his mind. He grasped by faith, just as you and I must grasp by the same faith that his Father, that your Father in heaven owns you. He has bought you, and you belong to him, soul and body, in life and in death. And he keeps you, and he guards you, and when you are in the grave, he will set a guard over your dust. And in accordance with his own faithful promises in Christ Jesus, he will raise us and soul and body again will join. He will raise us whole on the resurrection day. And so we may say with full confidence with one Dr. Mather, a New England physician and friend of Jonathan Edwards that Corruption, earth, and worms shall but refine this flesh till my triumphant spirit comes to put it on afresh. And we will put on the body afresh. On that great triumphant day, we know it because Christ, as Paul says, was but the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He saw no corruption in the grave. He rose so that we who will see corruption may also rise, sown in the ground corruptible, raised incorruptible, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to him. Jesus was not disappointed, was he, in his hope? It was proven. His hope was justified on the third day when he rose from the dead. Nor will your hope be disappointed, Christian. 
You who hope and long for his appearing, you who have placed your full faith and trust in Christ Jesus, who have rendered your lives over to following him in this life and in death, I say your hope will not be disappointed either. Jesus believed the resurrection and he received it on the third day. You who await resurrection by faith in Christ, you will also receive your hope, the resurrection of your body from the dead, of your flesh. Die you must, but rise you shall. And though in your case you will see corruption, you will rise to eternal life. Christ's resurrection long foretold even a thousand years before he was even born. Christ's resurrection preached by the risen Jesus himself from this very passage. Christ's, the resurrected whose voice is heard even here this morning in the preaching of his word and will be met at his table. Christ raised from the dead body and soul is not only the cause, Christian, but the guarantee of your rising. So you may go to your grave. You who are in Christ, the way you will go to bed tonight, you can rest your body on Christ the way you will rest your head on the pillow saying, since Jesus is mine, I'll fear not undressing, but gladly put off these garments of clay. To die in the Lord is a covenant blessing, since Jesus to glory through death led the way. Or even better this, from the inspired words of Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh will I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Amen.